Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we look into your word, God, that you would speak to us by your word. God, I pray that your intentions for what we're going to look at today would take place and happen in each one of our lives. God, I thank you and praise you that your word is true, that it does not change. God, that it's as real in our lives as it was at that time. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, the road to Emmaus, and we looked at the Cleopas and whoever that other person was with him and how the Lord met them, met with them. Uh, we, hopefully we picked up on how, you know, there's a picture for us there of these unknown people. Only one of them even has a name, how God met with them, met their needs, ministered to them in an amazing way, gave them revelation, what would be insignificant people. And hopefully it's a picture for us that, you know what, God does the same thing for us in our lives. You know, there is no insignificant people in God's kingdom, in God's family. We're all significant to him. He loves every one of us. He has a plan and a destiny for every single one of us. This week we're going to look at the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, It's interesting how many times the number 40 pops up in the Bible. God's always doing something very intentional during those 40 days. And I think he had a very specific purpose or two, at least, in the 40 days that he spent on earth. So I would title the message is 40 Days of Evidence and Instruction. And I think you'll see the, the evidence and also what some of the instruction was. You know, there, was, there had to be a reason. There had to be a reason, right? He was raised from the dead, and he could have went straight to heaven and been seated at the right hand of God the Father. But he wasn't. He was on the earth for 40 days afterwards, and he was busy. I'm going to read, and actually in Acts chapter 1, uh, what's going to be on the screen is going to be in the NIV, I believe, and I'm going to read it from my translation. It says this. I'm going to start with verse 1 through 6, and I may read a couple extra verses that aren't up there. It says this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Luke is writing this, and the first account he's referring to is the Gospel of Luke. So he's saying, I wrote that first account about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, the ascension, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I'm going to read a couple more verses. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, Samaria, and even to the remotest or uttermost parts of the earth. After the crucifixion of Christ... After his burial and after his resurrection, 
He appeared to the disciples a number of times in the next 40 days. And this would be amazingly important time for the apostles. You know, we, we've looked at where they were after, the resu- after his death and burial. Hopeless, afraid, hiding away basically in, in a room. Not knowing what to do, getting ready to scatter. And then of course, when he was raised from the dead and they found the tomb empty... Remember how there was a little bit of excitement, but then it always kept saying things like, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. So Jesus stayed on earth for 40 days to make sure that they believed it. That there was evidence, ample evidence, that the resurrection really, truly happened. And for the apostles, you can imagine, it was a time of great joy I mean, it's, again, it's just hard to put yourself in their place, but the man that they had been following for three years, the man they had walked away from everything from, the man that they were putting all their hopes in had been killed, hung on a cross and crucified, and now here he is, alive, showing up at whenever he wants, and talking to him, letting them touch him, watching him eat a meal with, him, with them. Time of great joy, over Jesus' resurrection. And I can only imagine again a time of anticipation of, wow, this has been cool. What's going to happen next? What's gonna, what could get better than this? He's been crucified and he's been raised from the dead. What is going to happen next? Because of all of those things are just building to something amazing. In John 16, 22, Jesus had spoken these words. He said, So with you, Now is your time of grief, as he was talking to the disciples in John. He says, now is your time of grief. He was telling them about what was going to happen, even though they didn't get it. But he's telling them, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And this has come to pass. He was gone, there was great grief, and now there's great rejoicing. A joy that cannot be taken from them. A joy that comes from Christ, the living Christ. For Jesus, I believe there's clearly at least two significant purposes for his being on earth for those 40 days. The first one is to literally give evidence, to give proof that he was raised from the dead. You know, the, the soldiers that were at the tomb, they had already been told to tell this story and make it, tell this lie that you know, like somebody came during the night, his followers, and they rolled away the tomb and they took the body and they hid him. There was already that lie out there. And if no one ever saw Jesus alive, no one ever saw him alive, how do you think that would have impacted the apostles and the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus? Well, we've heard the tomb is empty. We haven't heard an angel say something, but we've never really seen him. So I believe the one, maybe primary reason, was proof of his resurrection. And the, the second reason was to, to give the last directions, the last teachings to his disciples about the kingdom of God they were probably still confused about what the kingdom of God was going to or supposed to look like. 
In Acts 1.3 that we just read, it said, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. I believe that verse gives us the two main reasons of why he was on earth for those days. So we're going to look at the proof, first of all, and then we're going to look a little bit at the teaching. Jesus gives proof of his resurrection in a number of different ways. First of all, he shows himself to his apostles. We're not going to spend much time talking about that. We've heard about that. We understand the way that he did that. He showed up in the room more than one time with them. Uh, First time Thomas wasn't there. Second time Thomas was there. He shows himself to the apostles, even as it tells us in Acts 1, verses 2 and 3. But then he showed himself to a lot of other disciples. And I think this is really significant. It wasn't just this small group. We could even refer to them maybe as an elite group, the apostles that got to see Jesus. But a number of other disciples. Uh, we, if you're familiar with the Easter story, you know uh, it looks like four women went to the tomb. Mary, Magdalene, the other Mary, and it looks like Salome and Joanna when you put the Gospels together. It looks like there was four of them. And that's the story, if you remember from your study, that, that when Mary, they, they kind of went to him and fell at his feet and wrapped their arms around their, his feet and, and, and recognized Jesus. So these four ladies saw Jesus. We know that last week we spent a lot of time talking about Cleopas and, and whoever this other person was on the road to Emmaus. They saw Jesus. They experienced Jesus after his death and resurrection. And then in 1 Corinthians 15... I want to read this. In verses 6 and 7 it says, After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers or disciples at the same time. So there's this large crowd and we don't know much about the time or the situation, but it tells us there were over 500 people gathered and Jesus shows up. And he reveals himself to them. And said, Paul, when he's writing this to the church at Corinth, and he says, Many of them are still alive today. Why is that significant? His story could be corroborated. There was evidence. He says many of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the other apostles. So we see he didn't just appear to the apostles. He appeared to the ladies. He appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. And Paul's saying a lot of them are still alive. And then James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He appeared to him. How good was this evidence? Well, it's pretty hard to deny firsthand testimony. The witness. He he, He appeared many times, not just once. Many different environments, many different circumstances, many different locations. He appeared to them. We can find at least 10 times recorded in the Scripture to us that he there. And in my translation, and I believe the one that was up there in Acts, it said, he gave many convincing proofs. Convincing proofs. Infallible proofs. That word that's put in there in convincing in my translation, it could have been infallible, it could have been undeniable, it could have been unmistakable or sure proofs. What he's saying is, this is irrefutable evidence. These people, not just one, not just two, not just a few, but over 500 people have seen Jesus alive after they killed him and put him in a tomb. He is risen. 
Let's go to court. Let's bring in the witnesses. There's going to be a line that goes around the block because there's over 500 people. They're going to testify that they saw Jesus. He's saying this evidence is irrefutable, undeniable. They saw him. I was just a vision. No, they talked to him. Well, it might have been a vision that talked. No, they touched him and it was flesh. And they sat down and he ate just like a man. Irrefutable proof that Jesus was alive. And it's interesting, sometimes he appeared to individuals, sometimes to the large groups, as we said, showing himself. Now the important question here is, how does all that evidence affect you and me? How many of us believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You can raise your hands if you want to. I want to find the ones that don't. Okay, most of us would say, yeah. Now here's the next question. Why do you think that? If I'm an unbeliever, and you tell me Jesus rose from the dead, really, you believe that? Uh Uh-huh, why? Are you ready to answer that question? Our faith depends upon the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If He didn't, we could just as well be worshiping a rock, or Mohammed, or Buddha, or anything else. Why do you believe that? Well, the only reason we can believe it is the evidence. The evidence, the evidence that we look at, the same evidence that they had. It was irrefutable and undeniable then. It's irrefutable and undeniable today. We believe. You know, the only way you can really believe in the resurrection is we're not going to see him walking around in the flesh. Until we hear a trumpet, we're probably not going to see him. We really can go by feelings. You know, I, I get that. I can feel his presence. We get that as believers. But try telling that to an unbeliever and they might lock you up. Oh, you feel his presence. What's wrong with you? Prayer. Well, we understand the value and importance of prayer, communing with God. But prayer doesn't reveal that to you. We have the evidence In John 20, it says, All of this was written so that we may believe. The Bible is written that we may believe. This is the evidence that we have that we may believe. Undeniable. Testimony of witnesses. There's a couple of verses I want to read in John chapter 20 first and then also in 1 Peter. In John chapter 20, starting at verse 29, it says, Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, Physical evidence, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be us. God says, blessed are us. Blessed are you. Blessed am I that I believe even though I have not seen. Why do I believe? Blind faith. Absolutely not. I I hate that phrase. It's not blind faith. It's intellectual faith. It's faith based on historical evidence, an overwhelming amount of historical evidence. In 1 Peter 1, 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. I mean, how sane must you not be to tell people you love somebody nobody can see? Our faith to the unbeliever is ridiculous. It makes no sense in the natural. To us, it makes perfect sense. We understand, we get it. Why? Because of the revelation that God has given us. Because he first saved us, wooed us, drew us to himself. It goes on and says, And even though you do not see him, now you believe in him. 
and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That should be the description of a Christian. We are filled with this inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is by believing, by His grace, by faith, in the evidence that it's true. Now, I'm going to take just a little rabbit trail here. If you're a good debater, or arguer at all, and you're talking to someone and you just tell them all that I just told you about the evidence, the infallible proof, they're going to stop you in your tracks just like this, probably with this one question. You mean to say you believe the Bible's true? Why? Now, I've spoken on this before, and I'm probably going to again in a few weeks. But that question, I've shared this before. I spoke at a campus crusade meeting up at the college, and it was probably 100 kids. This was a couple years ago. And they were on fire for God, and I, I asked that question. Who in this room can stand up and tell me why you believe the Bible's true? Really? What if I said Marvel comic books are inspired by God? Would you believe that? You know, we need to know, you know, as Christians, why? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Because God says so. I understand that. You understand that because it says it in there, right? But we need to defend the Bible. And there's so many ways. I'm going to just give you one example. How many of you know there's a whole lot of manuscripts from the Bible? Anybody know how many? It's astounding. One of the ways that they test where something is considered credible is looking at the manuscript test. How many manuscripts do we have? How accurate are they? How recently were they written in comparison to the actual event? And it's amazing. Throughout history, and I'm not going to go through a bunch of different books, but... There are many, many ancient books of antiquity, historical books, that no one, no intellectual will question their authenticity or their truth. For example, Homer, he wrote something called the Iliad. Some of you have heard of it. I pity you if you've read it. (laughs) But Homer's Iliad was written before Christ. And Homer's Iliad, believe it or not, there are 643 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. The most recent ones are the ones that are closest to when Homer actually lived and to when the manuscript is dated is over a thousand years. But they've got 643 of them. And in Homer's Iliad, there is over 15,000 lines written. And in that, they have found a 5% error or what they call technical Technical corruption, 5%. And it means in all of those lines, they found five errors. And it was the oldest manuscripts are still over a thousand years from the actual bent. That's got 5% error in it. And no one in the intellectual population, no one who studies history, no one says Homer's Iliad is fake. Isn't that amazing? So how does the Bible match up? Well, Homer's Iliad is the number two most manuscripted book of antiquity there is. 643 manuscripts. The Bible has 
and they're finding more all the time, over 24,633 manuscripts. 24,000 compared to 600 and some. And it's amazing. You probably don't follow this type of thing, but you know they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave. Well, a lot of us don't know. They're still investigating more caves up there. And in Cave 7, they just found in recent, recent history two more manuscripts, one of the book of Matthew and one of the book of Mark. And the thing that's most amazing about it, they are within 35 years of the life of Christ. 35 years. Compared to Homer's Iliad, a thousand and some years. And in the Bible, with all these manuscripts, there are over 20,000 lines written. And in those 20,000 lines, there are 400 words that are inaccurate. All of them are simply spelling errors. Not one of those words changes a Christian doctrine or a Christian principle. Not one. That is a a technical corruption percentage of 0.5%. In other words, it's over 10 times more accurate than Homer's Iliad. Is the Bible accurate? Over 5,600, over 5,000 of the manuscripts are in the original Greek. It just blows your mind. And this is just one little tiny way we can say, you know what? The historical evidence. When somebody says, you can't prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus ever even lived. You can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, you can't. You know that? You can't. But you know, if somebody gives you that argument, just look at them and say, prove to me you brushed your teeth today. (laughs) Because they can't. Now what would they probably do? Shoot, they could even take me to their house and take me to the bathroom and see it's wet. So, how do I know you brushed your teeth? You just wet it. The point is, you cannot prove scientifically a historical event. It's impossible. But we have a system of historical evidence. It's what our judicial system is based on. What do they do when they bring in and there's a, there's a charge against someone and you're in the courtroom? What do they do? They bring in the witnesses. And based on the credibility of the witnesses and the credibility of the testimony, we determine innocence or guilt, true or false. That's what we have here, historical evidence. Mountains of it. Is the Bible true or isn't it? I believe any intellectual look. And I'm only touching the, the, the manuscript aspect. There's, there's archaeological, the scientific a prophecy. The evidence is overwhelming that the Bible is true. The evidence is clear. Okay, through with the rabbit trail. But it's, seriously, it is so important. It's so frustrating when you're sharing Christ with someone and you get back to only evidence you have is the Bible and maybe a transformed life. And they say the Bible's not true. Can you tell me it's true? Why should I believe the Bible? It's a shame when our testimony and our witness and our sharing of Christ stops because we can't answer that question with any credibility. It's important that we can be ready to defend what we believe and why. 
The second thing he did besides proving his resurrection, I believe, was to teach about the kingdom of God. And Jesus taught them a number of different things in different parts of the scripture. We can see this. One of the things he taught them about, the first thing that we see, is the meaning of the scriptures that related to his mission. Remember how confused the disciples were, even though they'd been with Jesus for three years? They were still expecting a king to come riding in on a white horse and conquer Rome. They didn't understand that he had literally said to them, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be dead for three days, and I'm going to rise again. Now you would think, looking backwards, we go, what part of that don't you get? Dead, buried, raised again. But they didn't get it. Their minds were closed. Jesus opened their mind, the meaning of Scripture. He teaches them, going through Scripture, showing him that the fulfillment of Scripture has taken place, that he had to suffer, that he had to die, that he would be resurrected, and he is going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. If you remember last week, in talking about the road, to, the road to Tarsus, you know, it says that Jesus opened their mind. And how did he do that? By opening the Scriptures. Opening the Scriptures. You know, we've got the complete Scriptures. Let God reveal himself to us, but to do that, we have to open it, read it, study it, meditate on it. He opened their minds by using the Scriptures. second thing he did when he was, was his teaching, that he began to teach them more clearly about the forthcoming kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God look like? If somebody said to you, when does the kingdom of God begin? Could you give him an answer? Hopefully, yes. Would it be the right answer? I don't know. Is the kingdom of God come? Come on, somebody be brave. Yes. Is it still coming? Yes. It's hard to understand, in a way. We are living in the kingdom of God. And Jesus wanted to teach them that, so that they would understand that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. And of course, yet it is coming when He one day will reign from a throne, but right now he reigns in the hearts of all the citizens of his kingdom. When we accept Jesus Christ, we are entered into the kingdom of God. When, when the disciples were teaching and, and Jesus himself was teaching, he was teaching the kingdom comes through repentance and forgiveness and a changed heart. And he reigns in my heart. He reigns in your heart. The kingdom of God is within us. Right now, here on this earth. And yet we do know He is coming back. As we sang about, the trumpet's going to sound, He is coming back, and He is going to reign as King. The Kingdom of God. Acts 2.38 says this, Peter replied to Him, Lord, this is the people. Back this up. The scenario, this is after Pentecost. Peter is giving his, his first sermon and it really impacts him and the people go, what do we do? And, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we become citizens of his kingdom? We repent of our sins. And we are, when we are baptized, it's a, a, an external revelation or picture of what's taken place. And we're baptized in Christ. Then he's teaching them about their work in the kingdom. 
And it's our work in the kingdom. And he's telling them that you, as eyewitnesses of the resurrection, us, as having first-hand testimony of the witnesses of that resurrection, are going to preach the gospel to the world. We're to share the gospel to the world. In John 3.11, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you people still do not accept the testimony. It was actually Jesus himself speaking those words to people. But we have been called, and he's teaching the disciples, you are to be eyewitnesses and you are to preach the gospel. And then he takes it a step further and he teaches them about, and he uses Peter as the example of what the devotion to the king is going to cost, what it's going to be like. And if you read this section of Scripture about Peter in John chapter 21, it's where we see Peter is being restored by by Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And there's a whole teaching in there of the words, but he's restoring Peter. And then Peter's ready, and and he says, Peter, you're going to die for me. There's going to come a time when it's going to be out of your control. And, and history tells us that the disciples, other than John, were all killed in martyrs' deaths. He says, it's, you're going to be devoted to me. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. Another thing we see him teaching as you read through the Gospels and see the last part of his teaching is that he is teaching them about their mistaken view of the kingdom. He's still having to clarify what they misunderstood for so long. And he's clarifying it very clearly for them. And in verse 6 of Acts, we see the disciples asking that interesting question, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is now the time to restore, to set in place, to restore it to its former state? Even in that question, it would seem that they still didn't understand exactly what that was going to look like. Their idea seemed to still be about a political kingdom. And God speaks to them, even in answering their question, he's saying, he says basically this, and maybe there's a good lesson here for us, because, you know, how many of the times when you or I pray, do we really know the will of God? And then we're surprised when he doesn't answer the way we want him to answer when we want him to answer. And sometimes I think we're kind of like this when we're praying. We're kind of like the disciples who are saying, Lord, when? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he says, you know what? It's none of your concern. Don't worry about the time and the how. It would happen when and how the Father wants it to happen. And then in verse 8, he says, you're going to have the Holy Spirit's guidance. You need to wait a few days, go to Jerusalem, and ten days later, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. So he's, he's painting this picture for these disciples. Because whether they understand it yet or not, he's leaving. Jesus, the Son of God, God on earth, is, is departing very quickly. And he's giving this last instructions helping to get a clear picture of what they're supposed to do, that it's going to take devotion to do this, what their message is going to be. He's laying this all out for them. 
And he's doing this because he knows he's leaving. But he's telling them, in 10 days, you go wait in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit is going to come. And you're going to receive power. He teaches them this by giving them a command. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait. What if they got tired of waiting on the eighth day? Or the ninth day? Boy, would that have been a bummer to be the one that decided to leave? Because they were impatient. He's telling them and he's giving this command. Don't leave. Wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, it says, Not many days hence. Well, it turns out ten days is what they had to wait. And wait because you are going to be clothed with power from on high. If anybody ever asks you, is there an advantage to have receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit? I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me because I'm a Christian. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, so is there really any benefit? Well, is there any benefit to being clothed with power from on high? I would say yes. And then the last thing he does is he commissions them. We just call it the Great Commission. We can see it in Mark and we can see it in other places. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he simply tells them, after this day when the Holy Spirit comes, this power is going to come upon you and then you will be my witnesses and then you will go through Judea, Samaria and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth with my message. Forty days is what they had Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Forty days. I can't imagine. Great joy, great excitement, great anticipation. And these days were so important to them, but again, I can't stress this enough. This is vi- they, those 40 days were vital to all of Christianity. They're vital to us. The evidence of the resurrected Christ. Without that evidence, if there were no resurrection, as I said, Christianity would be just like anything else. We'd be serving a non-living thing but we're serving the living God. And it was, this evidence was given as they were being prepared to go out and preach the gospel. Now, we come to a place where every single one of us have to make the same choice. We don't get to see, but blessed are those who believe that have not seen. We don't get to see, but you know what? We have to choose. We each have to choose whether we believe it or not, and obey God's offer of salvation and citizenship in his kingdom. The last scripture I want to read to you is in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, Jesus speaking to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But, but, whoever does not believe will be condemned. The answer to the decision we have to make is a big deal. Our salvation in spending eternity with Christ or being condemned in spending eternity in hell is in the balance. 
And we have to be able to judge for ourselves. Do we want to believe or don't we? And do we want to obey or don't we? I hope that I'm preaching to everybody that's already a kingdom kid or already members of the kingdom of God. But if you've not made that decision to choose to believe personally for yourself that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Messiah, don't wait. Check out the evidence. This book, and I've said this so many times, this book has withstood the most intense scrutiny of any book in the history of humankind. And there is no book in existence on this planet that has more evidence saying that it's true. The scrutiny in over 2,000 years by skeptics has not been able to disprove it. That should count for something. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. God, I thank you that you spent those 40 days on this earth before you went home in the fullness of your glory to, to be seated at the right hand of your Father. That you made clear that you were resurrected, that the grave couldn't hold you. That as we sang about this morning, the grave couldn't hold you. Death, there is no victory. Death, where is your sting? It's been defeated by Christ. And God, from that, we all can have that certain hope that we too one day will be resurrected should you tarry. That we will one day spend eternity in your presence if we choose to believe the evidence. If we choose to believe your word. That Jesus is who he says he was. And he did what he says he did. So Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not made that decision, today would be the day they would make that choice and surrender their life to you and allow you to be, do your work that only you can do in our lives. Amen.